Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Is that you? Have you believed in the word of the apostles that was shared to you, perhaps by a friend or a family member, or perhaps reading and studying the scripture? Perhaps you were taught the stories about Jesus in the gospel. And you've come to believe if that is you, this is who this prayer is for. It's for you. Up to this point, he had been praying for his apostles and the uh, maybe perhaps the larger group of disciples at that time. And then by extension would apply to us. But now these very specifically apply to us. And this is how he ends this prayer before he is arrested and seized and taken to trial and placed on a cross. Jesus' final portion of his prayer here is can be broken down into two main points. So I have two main points for us today, and I have a couple of uh, excursies, a couple of tangents that I might be going on here in a little bit. His prayer is in two parts. It's a prayer for unity and for eternity. So I'll just give you the two points now, but let me give you the first one. He begins with a prayer for our unity. Now, he had just been praying for their unity, for the apostles' unity a little bit earlier. We saw that in verse 11. You know, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Keep them in your name, Father, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And we talked about this a little bit last week, about the necessity of unity among believers, but that it's a unity that must be grounded on truth, not a superficial unity. It's not uniformity. It's unity of heart and soul and mind. It's unity that's grounded on truth. So as he prayed that for the apostles, in, in specifically in verse 11, he's praying that now for all who would believe in verse 21, that they may all be one. And then notice the basis on which, again, what Christian unity is to be based on. It is to replicate the unity that is in the triune, the Trinity, the Godhead. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice the many connections here. Jesus is united to the Father, and your Father is united to Jesus. Verse 21, you, Father, are in me, he says. In verse 22, he says, as we are one, he says. 23, he says, and you are in me. So the basis of the union of the Father and the Son here, again, different persons, but one nature, sharing that unity. And that believers are united to Jesus, which he said on many occasions throughout his gospel, John chapter 6, remember whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. John chapter 15, as the vine and the branches, he says, abide in me and I in you. A branch by itself cannot bear any fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear any fruit unless you abide in me. So believers are united to Jesus, and he, he says this again here, verse 21, and I in you, and verse 23, and I in them. And if you're united to Jesus, you're also united to the Father, that they may all be one, that they 
also may be in us, he says, that they may be one even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one in verse 22. Isn't that amazing? Believers united to Jesus and are united to the Father, we're essentially invited into the fellowship of the Godhead. I love this in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, that they may all be one, that they also may be in us. The unity that believers are to have is grounded in the unity that we have with the Father and the Son when we are called by his name and brought into his family and are Christians. So it's a unity that reflects the divine unity of the Father and the Son. And then notice there's a purpose here. The purpose is, and then I want you to catch the so that in verse 21 and also in verse 23. He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice the purpose for our unity here. Again, in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Notice the purpose, the result that comes from our unity together as our fellowship with God and unity with one another that's grounded in that fellowship, grounded in the truth of the gospel, that it will manifest itself in unbelievers seeing that and coming to know Christ through it. Unity is vital to our mission. Ancient early church father said, um, a guy named Chrysostom said, when there is peace and unity, it is a powerful witness to the world. D.A. Carson says, as the display of genuine love among the believers attests that they are Jesus' disciples. Remember, he said, gave them a new command. The world will know. They will know me because of the love that you have for one another. Carson continues, so this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus is the revealer. Carson continues, it is to be, speaking of this union, it is to be observable. It is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. You know, attempts to do that. What, we could just boil it down to the most basic of, of things that we can agree on. It says, no, it's not based on that. But, but it is based on the common adherence to the apostolic gospel. By love that is joyfully self-sacrificing. By undaunted commitment to shared goals in the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged. By self-conscious dependence on God himself. How important is the unity among believers? That that's what Jesus is praying, praying for. As he gets to the third level of this prayer, and he's praying for all the future believers who will come in to believe in him. And he says, and I pray for their unity. Because the, the testimony that that unity has really to an unbelieving world.
So he prays for their unity. But now here's where I want to kind of go on a little rabbit trail or a little bit of an excursus here. Um, and let, let, me, let me skip to the second one. I want you to notice something in verse 23. Where Jesus says, I in them and you in me. So Jesus in believers, the Father in Jesus, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And then notice this last little bit here. This is the, this is the part that I had been reflecting on a lot this week. Where Jesus prays so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Stop and think about that. And that Jesus praying to the Father, he says that you loved them even as you loved me. Now I think a lot of us when we think about the Trinity, we think about the, the Father and the relationship with the Son. How many of you have uh, trouble thinking about how much the Father loves the Son? No hands, right? No difficulty whatsoever. So often we, we've encountered this all throughout John's Gospel. John 3, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Or John 5, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life that I may take it back up again. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, he says. A little bit later here in verse 24, Jesus is going to speak about the love that the Father has for him as uh, having occurred before the foundation of the world. How many of us have a problem with that? But how many of you have a problem recognizing how much God loves you? How much the Father loves you is seen in that uh, this, this second petition here, this petition that he is praying. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's look at some of the Father's love for us. Romans 5. The Father's love is poured into our hearts by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Where Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. With the basis of your hope, you know why you have no shame uh, for your sin or condemnation for God's wrath? It's because God's love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Or this, the Father's love for us was prior to our salvation, prior to our faith, prior to our believing. Must never have the notion that uh, the Father loves us because we believed in him. He loved us 
before we believed. He loved us when we were his enemies. Romans 8, 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father's love is poured into our hearts. It was prior to our salvation. Um, and indeed, remember, the Father's love for us was like the love that he has for his Son before the foundation of the world, as it says in verse 24. It was the Father's love for Jesus. Similarly, notice what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why has he chosen us before the foundation of the world? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. The father loves us like he loves his son because he's adopted us and made us his sons and daughters, if we want to gender you know, equity here. He's, but sonship is the idea because sonship is what all of the inheritance, all of the blessing, everything would go to. The father's love was like the, the love that he has for his son prior to our salvation, prior to our faith. Indeed, before the foundation of the world. The father's love cannot be stripped away. Romans 8, 38. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's be reminded of the immensity of the Father's love, which is immeasurable. But God, Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. The Father's love is exemplified in our adoption as his children. That, that sinful rebels are not only brought into his kingdom as citizens. Remember, Christ has those three offices. He's office as king. But not only are we brought into his kingdom as citizens, but into his family as children. See or behold what love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Father's love is also seen in how he disciplines us and corrects us to grow into maturity. This is a this is a challenging passage, but it is also a very encouraging passage. Hebrews chapter 12. So this is going to be a couple of slides here. Bear with me. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for your discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
Oh, how often do we spin this around? We think of the trials or the difficulties we have in our life that, that God is like punishing us or abandoning us or harming us or neglecting us. No. These are opportunities for him to grow us. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Father's love is evident in how he disciplines us to grow us into maturity. A couple more. The Father's love empowers us to conquer through any hardship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul writes, in all these things, we are more than conqueror through him who loved us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And I love how often we end with our closing benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Do you feel at times or have doubted at any time that God does not love you? We have no problem thinking about how much the Father really loves Jesus, his Son. But do you know that the Father really loves you if you are in the Son? So that the world may know that you sent me and know the, that you have loved them as you have loved me. Amazing. Amen. Rabbit trail complete. Let's return back. Thinking of how much the Father's love is for us in Jesus' petition, we see it. Uh, particularly in the second petition, and this gets us to the second point. Jesus' prayer for our eternity. Remember, this is the, the third portion of his prayer. He's praying for all those who would come to believe in the message of the apostles. And he says, I pray for their unity, but I'm also praying for their eternity. And verse 24, underline this in your Bible. This is an amazing one that is deserving of much reflection. The last thing that Jesus prays for in his high priestly prayer the longest of his report, recorded prayers in all of Scripture is this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me from the foundation of the world. 
All through this prayer, we've, we've kind of seen a sequence, and it's a logical sequence. Jesus prays for our preservation. Guard them, you know, verses 11 and 12. He prays for our protection in verse 15. He prays for our sanctification in verse 17. Remember, sanctify them in the truth. He prays for our unity, verse 12, and also the verses that we had just read. And lastly, he's praying for our final participation with him in glory. He's praying for our eternity. Now, a reminder here, remember we had seen this a couple of weeks ago on the covenant of redemption that, that uh, the pact and agreement between the father and the son that the father was going to uh, come and offer his life as an atoning sacrifice in obedience to the father and that the father would reward him with a gift of people his people, and that Jesus would receive that gift. Remember, believers, you are a gift. We often think of Jesus as a gift from the Father to us. That is true. But in a very real sense of what we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter, verses 1 through 5, that we, believers, the, the saints, the elect, are a gift from the Father to the Son. And so he echoes that again. He says that again here in verse 24, whom you have given me. So this is not just referring to just the apostles. This is to be all those who would come to believe in him are those who have been given by the father to the son. And this is what he prays for them. <clears throat> Two things. He prays his desire. I want you to see that there. I desire. Some of the old translations have I will. Like I will, not like I will do something, but no, like as a function of my will. This is what I desire. This is what I want, Jesus says. I want, I desire, I will that they, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. So here's the first part. Jesus' desire is that believers will be with him in heavenly glory. Jesus' desire is for his people who have been given to him as a gift from the Father, and he is now uh, departing to go to the Father. He'd been praying that. He'd been saying that, um, verse 11, I'm, I'm no longer in the world, I, I'm, uh, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And he's saying, and even though I am coming to you and they are still left in the world, this is my desire, Father, and I'm interceding on their behalf. I desire that they will be with me. And where is he going to be? He's, I'm coming to you. He's going to heaven. Even right now, he is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus' desire in this prayer is that they will be, we will be where he is. Jesus longs for us, his people, to join him as he reigns in glory. Have you ever had an experience? Maybe it was a, a major vacation trip or um, gone to an exotic location or something like that. Have you ever gone somewhere or had a really tremendous experience and wished so badly that other people that you know and love could have joined you there? You think of one? Show me in your hands, right? Okay. 
Um, I, I have many that come to my mind, I think, in particular, the, the Israel trip that I went on 12 years ago. And I wish, oh, man, I wish, uh, I wish Janet and the girls could have seen some of these locations and seen the places. And just, I've often thought about, like, I would love to go back, and I would love for them to experience what I experienced. I wish they could have been there with me. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and what he is desiring is that you would be with him. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning in all of his glory, and he's like, oh man, I can't wait till my people are with me. Jesus expresses his desire that we would not only be with him, but then also, secondly, Jesus expresses his desire that believers will behold him. It's one of those old words I wish we used more. You know, behold. Like I would love to be, you know, hearing, you know, after the church and you're telling a story and, and behold, and then continue your story, you know. Uh, it's one of those words. We've got to reclaim some old words. But behold, it means like, hey, I really need your attention. Get your eyeballs on here. I want you to pay attention. This is a big deal. They want Jesus' desire for them to behold, to see him in the fullness of his glory. I desire that they also whom you give me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, the original disciples, the original apostles, the first Christians, were able to see Jesus. Many of you sometimes are jealous that you wish you could have been like one of those original disciples that would have seen Jesus. John begins, remember, he's talking about the incarnation of Jesus into the world. He says, the world became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus, remember elsewhere in, this, in the Gospels, he's spoken of, you know, blessed are you who have seen me, but blessed even more are those who don't see me and believe. But with Jesus' departure, we don't see him. And so the disciples were able to see him, but for those who would believe in Jesus through their word, we do not see him. But Jesus prays that we will. He wants you to see him. He desires that you will see him in his magnificent glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus took the three up there and they beheld his glory. And Peter writes about this and it's like, that we saw his majesty was like we got a peek behind the veil of his true glory of what it would be like when he is going to reign in heaven. He says, we got a picture of that. We don't. We just have, we just have their word. We have their message of it. But if we don't see Jesus in the fullness of his glory now, what does that mean for us now? How can we experience Jesus' glory and all of that on earth while he is there. Well, the scripture writers, writers do tell us that we do perceive it by faith. That we, that we perceive it. We, we won't see with our eyes 
until we get into his presence. Then we will see him face to face. But until then, we see with a heart of faith. It comes to us in a couple of ways. It comes to us through his word. There's a spiritual connection that we have, a union with Christ. I love what the Apostle Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's speaking about what will happen in the future. He says, and we all with unveiled face. And by the way, the Apostle Paul got to see the glorified Jesus too. Remember, except his was just on the road to um, Damascus as he was going to go and slaughter and kill Christians. And he saw the glorified Jesus knocked him off of his horse and blinded him. And so he now, it's very interesting that to hear Paul write this way of beholding the glory of the Lord. He's longing now, he, he was terrified to see it the first time, but now he's longing to see it this time. Notice he says in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there's a reality that by faith in Christ, by believing in his word, by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we, we get to behold in some way the glory of the Lord. He goes on in the next chapter. I don't have this on the slides, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he speaks about the unbelievers in the world. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ, who is the image of God. And then he says again, he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Shine this in their hearts. One day we will see with our eyes, but now we can see and behold his glory in our hearts through his word. And then this, the John, the author of this gospel in his letter says, behold, beloved, excuse me, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is reflecting right here what he just heard Jesus, what he heard Jesus pray in that high priestly prayer. Let me just close with these words from J.C. Ryle, the manly Mr. Ryle. I don't have it on the slide, so. Listen attentively. Ryle says, of this conclusion to this prayer, this is a singularly, singularly beautiful and touching conclusion to our Lord's remarkable prayer. We may well believe that it is meant to cheer and comfort those who heard it 
and to strengthen them for the parting scene which was fast drawing near. But for all who read it even now, this part of his prayer is full of sweet and unspeakable comfort. We do not see Christ now. We read of him, hear of him, believe in him, and rest our souls in his finished work. But even the best of us, at our best, walk by faith and not by sight, and our poor, halting faith often makes us walk very feebly in the way to heaven. There shall be an end of all this state of things one day. We shall at length see Christ as he is and know as we have been known. We shall behold him face to face and not through a glass darkly. We shall actually be in his presence and his company and go out no more. If faith has been pleasant, much more will sight be. And if hope has been sweet, much more will certainty be. No wonder that when Paul has written, we shall ever be with the Lord. He adds in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, comfort one another with these words. We know a little of heaven now. Our thoughts are all confounded when we try to form an idea of a future state in which pardoned cinders shall be perfectly happy. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we may rest ourselves in the blessed thought that after death we shall be with Christ. Whether before the resurrection in paradise or after the resurrection in final glory, the prospect is still the same. True Christians shall be with Christ. We need no more information. Where that blessed person who, uh, who was born for us, died for us, and rose again, there can be no lack of anything. David might well say in Psalm 16, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What David says there is true and is what Jesus was praying for, that we would be with him, that we would be with Christ. That is his desire and that we would be able to behold him in the fullness of his glory. That's what he desired. And that's what he prayed. And Jesus always prayed in accordance with the will of the Father, so we know that that's what the Father wills too. Comfort one another with these words. I've said, how is it that we can behold Christ spiritually? We do it through faith in his word, but I think that there's another tangible way that we can behold him, and that is in the ordinances that he has given us. The Lord Jesus gave us that meal to remind us of the gospel and to nourish us with its truth. And so as we get 
ready to take the Lord's Supper together, may we do so with this thought that Jesus' prayer in verse 24 be in our minds. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Amen.